Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Occupying the airwaves from Grand Rapids, Michigan, you can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, or you can listen to Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. How you doing? Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Aylin. I am the 25% of the podcast. Right, right. <laughs> uh, well, first off, welcome back, everyone. We're back from our, our holiday break. We definitely were happy to see that so many people missed us while we were on break. But at the same time, some people were getting really ticked off. Yeah. That we were gone for all this yeah. time. We do take a break around this time each year. Yeah. We are teachers and we enjoy our holidays, but thank you for all the encouragement. We do have family and need to spend time with and cats. And now we're back, children. so quit your complaining. We have um, Skyrim caves to oh God. plunder. And... You, you and my wife Skyrim <laughs> caves. Um, What's a Skyrim cave? I didn't get it either, Luke. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a video game thing. Uh, In this episode, we've got some God Thinks Like You, some counter-apologetics, and more. But let's start off by talking about uh, the Supreme Court, a group that uh, often makes their way into our show. Uh, This time, because, well, they um, upheld a ruling that said that um, churches can discriminate. As I've said before, churches will be the last bastion of discrimination, and now the Supreme Court has backed me up on and, that. And this was a nine, this wasn't just a narrow victory. This was nine to zero. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this was unanimous. Even the liberal justices supported this one. It's being called the most significant religious liberty decision in two decades. Just one way and, of putting it. And the idea is that there is a ministerial exception to employment discrimination laws. Religious groups need to be able to choose who is going to be their ministers without the government stepping in and intervening. Apparently, that means that employment discrimination laws are not going to apply to them. Yeah, it it started with a case actually here in Michigan, Mm -hmm. um, in Redford, Michigan, where uh, a teacher at a Lutheran school... Missouri Synod Lutheran, I must say. Missouri Synod Lutheran. Uh, Is that your people? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, She took some time off for um, a disability claim. Narcolepsy. 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 Mm, Dave, wake up. Oh, sorry. Um, It's a real serious condition. I apologize. There was (laughs) – what happened here with the Supreme Court is they didn't actually rule on it. Um, They declined to hear the case, um, but in their – their decision to not hear the case, they made it clear that um, in, by the way, two separate decisions with two kind of different ideas of why they were declining this case, upholding the lower court decision. 
Um, they made it clear that, uh, in fact, churches and church-funded organizations, such as the, the school in question here, can fire or not hire people based on their religious beliefs. Yeah, it's specifically ministers. Let's say somebody's working in a religious college. If they're teaching secular subjects like English or physics or something else like that, the, then it wouldn't be all the same discrimination laws in employment will apply. But if they are a minister, then those those discrimination laws do not apply. But the problem is, is it doesn't define who counts as a minister. Right. She was a, she was a math is, teacher. Yeah. Their yeah. idea is that the state doesn't want to get involved in deciding who is a minister or not, yes. and I can understand that. But what that basically means then is that these denominations and religious institutions can set their definition as wide. If a, if a teacher is leading prayer before mm-hmm. the beginning of a class, right. that could count as a minister if the particular religious institution wants it to be so, Which because is, they're giving religious instruction. Right, yeah. and that's about equivalent to what the, the teacher in question here was doing. She was teaching secular subjects. She was a math teacher, but had about 45 minutes of yeah. each day that was devoted to some kind of religious um, duties. Okay, which could have been leading prayer. Now, I went to Christian schools from preschool all the way through high school, and I know that even in math class and science class and English class, there was, and the schools pushed for this intentionally, a religious aspect to the courses. Mm -hmm. So you could use How many shekels would you have if Josiah (laughs) gives you a shock of wheat? I remember, in fact, in in high school, one of my math teachers saying that the school was trying to really push religious inclusion in all of the subjects, and he only spent about five minutes but saying how math proves God's existence because of how... Um, well-tuned it, it all is and and all of this. But that is enough to go, okay, this guy is working in a ministerial capacity, therefore we can fire him right. if he's the wrong type of Christian, if he's gay, if he's living a lifestyle that doesn't fit with our See, religious the, beliefs. With this case, though, the, the, the problem was is that she had had this condition, she wanted yeah. uh, compensation for that or some allowances mm-hmm. from them, and then they fired her saying, yes. blah, blah, you know, we, we don't want to pay. And then she, uh, then she went outside and claimed to had a discrimination claim. And that's where the, the point where they pulled the ministerial thing. Right. You can't sue us because in our church, we handle things inside here without going outside. Yeah, right. Christians they... do not sue other so, Christians until they've gone through exactly. a certain set of procedures. It wasn't the fact that she got fired that led to this. It's that she complained about having been fired for um, for a health condition. And she was seeking hmm. a disability uh, and uh, that, discrimination claim, yeah. rather. And, and trying to take it through the court system as opposed to through the church is what made it outside of the church's teaching and therefore they had a right to fire her, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is which is insane. It's troll logic. But yeah, see, yeah. And, and see, if you were to ask me in the abstract, should churches have to follow these discrimination laws? Mm-hmm. I could see a case for saying no in that in that, of course, if you're going to be hiring a minister, 
Of course. How ludicrous right. it would be to, to say, oh, well, you discriminated against atheists or, or Muslims for right. seeking that post. Right. But when you see how this is actually being applied. Exactly. Uh, it's... It's very disturbing. And that's how the, the Justice Scalia apparently, like, by these transcripts, exploded from the bench. Like, it's right there in the Constitution, you know, about uh, about free expression oh, of religion. Oh, now they like their separation of church and exactly. state. Exactly. And, and so how much more clear could it be? And and they don't seem to be sort of getting the, 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 what, what Jeremy just mentioned. And also these, these cases where, you know, well, like we were just talking, where you could – Broaden your def. All, all this is is giving a license them to broaden as much as right. possible. Who's right. a minister? I think we might have talked about this earlier in the show. And from the standpoint of like tax benefits, I know that I have you know I have a relative at a church who like isn't a minister. I ought to know, but does things like door to door sometimes mm-hmm. or calling people for as part of their prayer circle and gets right. a tax benefit Would for calling themselves count? like you know a a uh, yeah. whatever the term they have a minister of the faith or something like that, which is ridiculous. Yeah. It, you know, it's not it's not a minister in any sense of that's the guy who stands up before the service. Yeah, exactly. But again, they know that that the government doesn't want to get into that whole swamp about determining who's a minister. Right. They don't. It doesn't yeah. have you know a rigorous way to distinguish between the ministerial employees and the others. Mm-hmm. The chief justice says that uh, the job duties reflected a role in conveying the church's message and carrying out a mission. Like that's. Which you, you could extend to the so secretary, you could extend to the, the kitchen staff. Right, you could, I mean, you could extend that yeah. to the people handing out leaflets in your neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. Barry Lynn from Americans United for Separation of Church right. and State, he brought up a, a, a potential area where this could backfire, and that is uh, sexual harassment claims. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, that ruling declares open season Oh, yeah. yeah. On uh, on on women in these churches, because if they try to if they try to bring a, a suit, they can be kicked out. Just in which that. case the church is then exempt. If they get all uppity, they can just get rid of uh, get rid of those employees. Um, I I have to quote. This is from New York Times article here. Um, bishop William E. Laurie, who's a Catholic bishop says, this decision makes resoundingly clear the historical and constitutional importance of keeping internal church affairs off limits to the government. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Catholic Church. All right. Um, Now, speaking of uh, the separation of church and state, um, in Illinois, there was actually something of a, a victory for the separation of church and state, which has turned into um, the Catholic charities throwing a hissy fit, is what it amounts to. When they cut off their gravy train. Yeah, exactly. I guess the major difference would be, in the case we're talking about now, these church groups are receiving government funds. Yes. So if you have government contracts, you need to abide by certain rules. Uh, Well, Catholic Charities is dealing with this now. Uh, There's a federal requirement now that would require Catholic Charities to consider same-sex couples as potential adoptive parents. If Um, they want to receive state money. Yes. Yes. Or potential foster care parents. Yeah. They they can stay in business. Sure. But if they want to get money from the state, they have to be non-discriminatory and they have to consider... Same-sex couples as potential foster care or adoptive parents. So, you know, they're going to take a small 
cut in their budget, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and so they don't have to abide by these laws. Maybe uh, people donating to the church will uh, give a little bit more to right. to support the difference. Not the case. Nope. <laughs> because the uh, Catholic Charities over the past 40 years has become incredibly dependent on the government for their cash. So, for example, uh, Catholic Charities, it it's supposedly serves about 10 million poor people mm-hmm. across the country. But $2.9 billion of their budget, and that's about 62% of their annual revenue, comes from the government alone. That's a lot of only, money. Only Dear 3%. God. Only 3% actually comes from the Catholic Church. The rest wow. are from private, private donors. Yes, yeah, private donors. Mm. So the church is raising almost none of the money to support their charities. Yeah. And they get their name yeah. on it. They get to proselytize. They get to right. do everything. But, but they are but really not doing anything. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the case of Illinois, which is what this particular article from the New York Times, uh, Bishops Say Rule on Gay Parents Limit Freedom of Religion by Lori Goodstein, their Catholic charities in five out of six of the dioceses in Illinois, the revenue they're getting from the state ranges anywhere from 60% to all the way up to 92% of their revenue is coming from not just public funds, but specifically public funds devoted to foster care. They hmm. depend on their foster care services for almost all of their revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now, suddenly confronted with this prospect of having to allow those dirty homosexuals to actually raise children. Which, by the way, studies have shown do just as well or better, or better yeah. mm-hmm. than straight people do. But that's Which, beside the point. That's your secular logic. Yes, well, I'd, exactly. I'd, I'd say it's right within the point. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> they, they really don't have any secular reason for objecting no. to it. While several other religious charities are, you know, just basically uh, taking this on the chin and saying, well, okay, uh, we'll have to do a few things. We're going to have to compromise a little bit on what we think is right, but it's greater good is to serve is to serve the children and the, right, and the right. needy. Um, the Catholic Charities' response has been to just completely shut down its doors. Right. They would rather not take care of children than allow a few uh, allow, a few homosexuals okay, so they have to a great adopt. track yeah. record with taking care of children yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, fair yeah. enough well and they're yeah. and they're publicly spitting this as uh, the war on religion you know right. so like the secular oh, government is telling us what to do with our religion yes. they're trying to take away the character of our religious things with you know totally uh, glossing over the fact that it's you know it's the issue of you can't take money to discriminate with your religion right. you can have right. whatever religion you want uh, quote in the name of tolerance we're not being tolerated unquote says bishop thomas j poprocky which i quote just Pop because Rocky. i like you his made, last name you made that up <laughs> no it's it bishop makes my j- mouth tingle bishop j- yeah, exactly <laughs> um but but it's that same old excuse yeah. of oh they're trying to force us to be tolerant and they're, so they're discriminating yeah. against us you're a discriminatory group. You shouldn't receive state money. If you want to run a foster program and not allow homosexuals to be even considered as, a, as viable people to take care of children, then fine. But you don't get money from the state. I like how Judge John Schmidt, a circuit judge in Illinois, has responded to this. He's just bluntly said no citizen has, has a recognized legal right to a contract with the government. 
absolutely making it absolutely clear what this Everything is really is about. On that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the Catholics are firing back. Anthony Piccarello from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops said, it's true that the church doesn't have a First Amendment right to a government contract, he said, but it does have a First Amendment right to not be excluded from contracts based <laughs> on its religious beliefs. What? They're not being excluded on the basis of the beliefs. Exactly. They're being excluded on the basis of their practices. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, speaking of pulling funding, um, Lowe's, the hardware store, right? Their hardware store? Lowe's knows. A hardware superstore, Dave. They yeah. pulled some of their advertising from All American Muslim. Why did they pull it from All American Muslim? Because it now tell somebody like me who doesn't know what All American Muslim is. Where have you been? Have <laughs> you been like sandy, in Florida? And I've been on the sandy beaches of Southwest Florida drinking. Dear listener, you'll have philosophy. to forgive Jeremy. He's been on a sandy nothing, spit in uh, eighty degree. Nothing fort. that has happened in the past month <laughs> and a half. Amazingly, this is yet another story with a local slash regional tie for us. Oh, um, dearborn. All American Muslim is a it's a reality show for TLC. TLC. Okay. They started doing a reality show called All American Muslim, where they followed around documentary style some Muslims in Dearborn, Michigan, Everyday which has, people has like, a fairly uh, large um, as you uh, can Muslim see, community. This yeah. Muslim is eating serious. <laughs> That's what it was. it was. It's essentially like if you've seen episodes, it's it's after a while that you don't even notice any Muslim because they're just like, you know, a football coach. Yeah, yeah and exactly. A, a secretary or yeah. somebody who wants to open a club and blah, blah, blah. But like, Why people flipped out about this show because what did they not include in their they didn't show any extremists. Because they didn't, they didn't, they they didn't follow to. follow around an extremist blowing up buildings. Yes, they, they, they weren't. Like, they weren't following. What's he going to do next? In this natural environment. And, and but if you watch really closely, every once in a while they start going la, 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 and, <laughs> and, and go nope 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 can't do that can't let them see. But the complaint was that these are not what real Muslims are like. Oh, these are these Come are on. poser Muslims. These are poser Muslims. TLC is trying to make Muslims look like regular Did people. You see John Stewart when he took, when he took down that he, he's like you know they they they're they criticizing the show for not showing terrorist activity and yeah, exactly. and this was like some family group That's we funny. should show some Christians Jeez. like yeah. you know doing whatever it was, it's fairly ludicrous but Lowe's apparently was pressured by this these groups to pull Christian their, groups of course their commercials not Muslim groups although I imagine there were Muslim extremists who were like no what was the uh, anyway but they so but they sort of leaned on Lowe's to pull their current from the from the show, and they did. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they thought that the business they would lose from being associated with this from the Christians was worth not. You know, how'd that work out for them? Well, then uh. they were, of course, the counter boycott against Lowe's, which I support. I do too. In that, I have never purchased anything at Lowe's ever yeah. and continue to not. Me, no, me neither, but I will continue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm doing something noble by yes. not. I took the staple gun and I'm like, you can have this back, man. I don't want your staple Do you, gun. Do you have the receipt? No, but there's a, you know, this, there's this always this contention with like, you know, and this happens uh, other times with like the, the community around, because I used to, you know, mm-hmm. I went to Wayne State University for listeners not Which around here. That's in Detroit. And I was surprised, oh, there's like a huge 
you know, Palestinian community that mm-hmm. lives in, in Dearborn. You go Several there. Several big old pretty mosques. Yeah, and mm-hmm. a lot of them are, are not only Muslims, but also Christians from the Middle East, like mm-hmm. Chaldeans. I have and, students who went to school there and said that Ramadan was great because the lunch lines were virtually <laughs> empty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually one of the segments on the show was the football team had to practice with no food during sunup. And so mm-hmm. these guys were like all passing out from from no food and water. And the other like some of the other guys were like, just they can have water, can't they? Just, you know, wait till the evening to have food. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, so it's an interesting blend of like uh, of of Islamic tradition in many cases or Middle Eastern tradition and then just like average American hmm. right. stuff. So Which actually, all American Muslim is a very fitting title, I suppose. Yeah, and so but there was actually, uh, I saw a parallel with a survey that had just come out comparing Muslims in America with their views about their role of, of as Americans, like where they place their religion versus hmm. their their religious identity mm-hmm. and their national identity. And I found some, there were some startling statistics from that because they compared them with other Americans, Christians, like Protestants, Catholics, and mm-hmm. then like Mormons and, and non-religious people. One of the questions they asked, and this is a survey um, that asked, uh, I think it was called the Muslim Americans Faith, Freedom, and the Future Survey. And they, the, one of the items was, how strongly do you identify with each of these groups? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the first one was the United States itself, your ethnic background, your religion, and then those worldwide who share your religion. And it turns out that it was true that Muslims identified relatively less as being U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, there were 69% said that they identify how strongly, like, a 69 on a 100 scale, right. 0 through 100, compared to Protestants, which were, like, 91, Catholics were 88, wow. Jews mm-hmm. 86, Mormons 80. But Blind the, patriotism. But Hooray! the non-religious and the atheists and agnostics were also low, too, at 76. So yeah. that's, that's probably, okay. you know, uh, tapping into do you see yourself as the prototypical, like, American? Maybe they feel in some ways still marginalized. But when they asked about the religion, how strongly do you identify with your religion, Protestants were 70 on that scale, Catholics 55, Mormons 90, and Muslims were 65. So they were even lower than the Protestants. (laughs) Higher than the Catholics. In identifying as being their religion. And then uh, they asked those of your religion worldwide, Muslims were at 57, uh, but, you know, Catholic, uh, Protestants were actually, I'm sorry, 37, 37. 37. And, and, and Protestants were higher, well. 50, Catholics, 39. So the point with that is, is that they, um, surprisingly, they actually identify less as being first and foremost Muslims mm-hmm. than do Christians. Right, and, and certainly Mormons. And that's what's always sort of... Um, glided over in these debates is that these people that say, well, they want to have Sharia law or they are right. not yeah. decent American, they put the the Quran over the Constitution. When you see surveys like this, you are, and there's other ones that show that you wonder Christians... Where are they getting those ideas? Christians put the Bible over the Constitution, or they think that in some ways their religion even more trumps their right. national identity there. Mm-hmm. And so, and they also, in the same survey, just to to drive home the point, they asked, some people think that the military, for the military to target and kill civilians is sometimes justified oh, yeah. when others think that violence is never justified. What's your opinion? Mm. And they use the same 0 through 100 scale. Muslims in the survey, 78 said never justified versus 21 sometimes justified. Wow. Protestants, 38 never justified, hmm. 58 sometimes justified. Mm. 
and similar with the Catholics. That is, in other words, that the Christians in this sample were much more willing to say, well, it's sometimes justified to kill civilians. Collateral damage. Whereas the Muslims were less likely to in America. Wow. Maybe because they're much more aware well, of it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, and their relatives well, are the ones that are getting targeted yeah, by exactly. our military. Yeah. So Fighting right. against a stereotype. I, I imagine that if I was yep. a Muslim here in America, I would be absolutely outraged at a lot of the fanaticism because it's making me look bad. Well, you've probably seen right. these also studies, too, where they interview people that have just become citizens and they ask them, you know, basic questions like, you know, what's the Constitution and who's, you know, the, the government, this and there. And then they interview people who are just like ordinary Americans who were born here on right. the same items. And it's just sort of hilarious how much more <laughs> somebody who wants to be a citizen in this oh, yeah. country and who wants to fit in, you know, and become American, how much more committed they are to actually walking the walk yeah. right. than some people who are just sort of take it for granted. Hmm. What was that uh, whole uh, the Yakov Smirnoff guy said that he knew he became a real American citizen when he started hating immigrants? <laughs> <laughs> and there's the uh, the Simpsons where Apu gets his citizenship. And what was the cause was of a, the Civil War? Well, there were many causes. Just <laughs> say slavery. slavery. <laughs> from, from yeah. The industrialization of the North to the agrarian South, just say slavery. <laughs> slavery it is. And now I can be have a citizen where I'm free to say and speak and charge whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, that's that's about right. Well, the other, so the other thing in that survey, if you note the, the stats, is that the, the group who most resembles Muslims in that survey in terms of their opinions of things like the use of, you know, uh, killing civilians or feeling uh, uh, identifying with the U.S. was the non-religious. Mm. And that is that they are, you know, probably no surprise they tend to be more, uh, more liberal and and uh, and have more skeptical attitudes about things like that. There was also an interesting study that came out recently that I think drives home. Listeners might remember in previous shows in the God Thinks Like You segment, I've talked about s- uh, studies that look at that use techniques of activating religious concepts called priming. Uh, and and how that can be sometimes increased like uh, prejudicial attitudes when you activate a religious mindset. There was actually a study that came out. The author's name was Gervais uh, and Nuran Zayan. He actually, on a previous episode, Gervais's study looked at the mistrustful attitudes towards mm-hmm. um towards atheists so you guys might remember that they found that the the headline from that study is that the, that atheists were somewhere on the lines of rapists mm-hmm. in terms of the level right. of mistrust that they engendered from people well in this study though what they did was they primed um, concepts they looked at prejudice against atheists but they primed concepts of secular authority rather than religion hmm. um, the rationale being that many of the attitudes towards atheists involve things like morality and distrust that you know if you don't have religious beliefs you're not going to be able to act right. morally how, that's how why, can you possibly be good without God yeah that's why I distrust atheists they don't have any hmm. external morality well in this case right. what they do is that what if you could activate in people's uh, consciousness that um, the concept that of secular sort of authorities where you don't need religious mandates to to mm. act morally and so they primed the concepts of things like police or government mm. uh, so they had like one condition in this study watched a video on uh, it was in Canada by the way so they watched the thing on like the Vancouver police and their success or, uh, so it was to activate a mindset of there are secular minders of authority that you don't need religion and it turns out the effect was for religious people it decreased their mistrust of atheists 
Really? Hmm. That is experimentally when you activate a concept of there are secular authorities, uh, religious people uh, don't uh, mistrust atheists as much. So do libertarians them. really not trust atheists because they really don't trust government? <laughs> is that how that works? Chronically primed. Does this, <laughs> does this mean that secular government fills a God-shaped hole? It, it <laughs> does. Actually, that's it kind of does. <laughs> There's other studies, too, where they, uh, uh, I think I've talked about experiments where they, there was one called uh, God and Government where they basically, uh, yes, they act, they show that there's a, a reciprocal or like a hydraulic relationship between the two that mm. values each other out where when people become feel out of control for example or that they uh, are made to feel sort of unsure about things that either religion or governmental uh, control can compensate for that Hmm. you might remember a quote when obama was uh, was running for president where he got a lot of flack because i think it was in san francisco but he was referring to the people rural sort of white conservative blue-collar oh, yeah, people, yeah. and he says they cling in these small towns. They don't have economic something or other activity. They cling activity, to their God and And they guns. cling to their guns and religion. Yeah. And he got a lot of flack from that, but technically, actually, that's what the research shows is true, that when mm-hmm. people feel a sense of lack of control economically right. or, or that, that you know there's nothing to fill the gaps, that's one of the reasons why they cling to other systems, other worldviews that offer stability, a comprehensive worldview, yeah. certainty. People, when they are feel insecure, do cling to religion, but they also can be compensated for that by clinging to government, which is one of the reasons why I think we've talked in the show before about the research in Europe, why they're not religious, is because they have a stable environment. Mm-hmm. They don't need mm-hmm. the church to sort of fill in because they have things like health care, you know, unemployment, generous benefits. And so one of the theories, secularization theory, says that there are secular institutions that fill the same role. Yeah. That religion would fill. The the study also compared these findings to um, to other research we have on surveillance and monitoring. People put their best face forward when they are being watched. And if so, people if, in London must be very well behaved. It is the most <laughs> uh, surveilled city in the world, right? Oh, yeah. They have cameras everywhere. And then the Eye of Sauron on a tower watch. Yeah, there's that too. Yes, kind of creepy. But yep. uh, again and again, all these experiments show that if people are aware that others are watching them, monitoring their behavior, they're more likely to act in pro-social ways. Mm. Uh, and what's interesting is that sometimes you can uh, you don't need real people even watching. Uh, you can just put up a picture of of, uh, of human eyes, <laughs> yeah. really? or yeah. artistic, like yeah. stylized oh, like in the eyes. That's be just that kind the of uh, word with the eyes. <laughs> yes, or, okay. or 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, with Big Brother. Or, uh, but the notion was that that was enough to get the exact same effect. And so what they were talking about is, in a way, re- religion is similar in that religion is telling people uh, that God is watching you all the right. time. But what they noticed is that the state can serve the same function. If you have this idea that you're... Um, so you're uh, saying a fascist government would keep everyone in line. I'm not saying that. <laughs> the science, the science says, says that. Says that. It, it, doesn't have to, it doesn't necessarily have to be the force of law, though. It can just be the fact that others, somebody others are watching because they have the right. effect through since if uh, third part, like, you know, if third parties knew that I, if they have studies where you do economic transactions with people like mm-hmm. you're generous or you could be yeah. stingy and that if you think that it's anonymous, People try shenanigans where they try to yeah, st- yeah. be greedy. But if they think that others are going to know in subsequent 
rounds right. who it was that shafted them, then they get more honest. So mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be yeah. like Big yeah. Brother, but it can be anything like social disapproval. The point is, uh, when when apologists make it seem like we need some sort of proof that we're going to be punished in the end uh, mm-hmm. to to be held accountable, we need a God watching over us. Um, the idea is that we we can we can show even in the religious, that the state pretty much serves the same function. You know that you're not going to get away with just anything. Um, So secular authority can replace religious authority in having an impact on people's actual behaviors. Right. The uh, the study calls this kind of uh, kind of awareness of of whether people are watching you or not the uh, hypersensitivity to uh, reputational cues. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, you're you know that other people are watching and you know that some authority figure is watching right. and so you have good reason to trust people that are in that kind of that same kind of predicament so if someone doesn't believe in god you might not think that they have that but that's just right. not the case because we know that that the government can serve a similar function. Right. That's well, why stores put up those signs that say, smile, you're on camera, right. even when they don't really yeah. have a camera. I often thought I should just get the sign that says, this house protected by such and such. Right. Oh, that works really well. Isn't that yeah. gonna, yes. <laughs> and save the money on the, the actual right. signs actually that work best for controlling people's social behavior is that one, ones that give you norms about what other people did. So mm. if they say, mm. some people like to, like the thing with the towels in the in the hotels where you have like, you know, you could either get a new one every day or you can have them them not wash it and waste detergent on it if they say like you know this amount of people prefer to save water and detergent by not having their their laundered stuff laundered every day Hmm. and then once you know that there's a certain yeah once you know that a certain proportion of people do that you adjust your behavior more than if the message would say bad 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 you know, yeah, or yeah. or uh, do this yeah. or do that. So people, so actually, the evolutionary mm. psychologists have fit this within general theories about what is the strongest modif- modification of behavior, and that was what Justin said: reputation. Yeah. It doesn't have to be supernatural, like Jeremy said. It just has to be what would other people think of me if, you know, I want to conform basically to the norms of the group. Yeah, yeah. Pu- the public schools here in Michigan have been picking up on this with their anti-drug campaigns i've noticed and instead of trying mm, yeah. the, instead of the old posters that used to be just around, say no. like yeah marijuana is going to completely destroy your life which mm. everybody knows is not true they just say hey look this is the percentage of your classmates that uh that don't don't smoke right. weed and and don't want it's to it's called social norming yeah 70 percent of kids don't drink. Yeah, and yeah. the hope is, as, Which is really, as soon as they see that, well, okay, you know, they know they're not the exception if they're. It if makes they're total to sense for, especially for high school age students. I mean, what do they care about more than fitting in? Not so. Yeah, exactly. So it works. <laughs> that should work great. You know, of course, then you get the problem of, well, I want to be unique, so I'm going to be part of the 30% that does drink. <laughs> I'm going to be unique. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's this this uh, correlation we see between uh, trust in the government and you know it's having an effect, in a sense, on the lessening of distrust towards atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, so an interesting question uh, is posed at the end of the study. You know, if 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 this study was done in a in a country where there was just vast distrust of the government, mm-hmm. would that uh, increase 
the like at a Ron Paul rally or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. Would that increase Wasn't distrust in atheists? Wasn't I mean this was done in America, right? Exactly. No, it was Canada. Canada. Oh, Canada. Canada. Yeah. Never mind. Okay. If it were done in America, <laughs> yeah, I think I'd, I'd be interested to see. I'm pretty sure we could yeah. make a pretty decent prediction on that. Well, see, yeah. that this is why you have in some of the third world countries where the government and the police are often not just a, a stable thing that they're actually mistrusted because they're corrupt. Right. You do see things like that's where you see a lot of religion running wild mm-hmm. is because they they pose in fact uh, we're recording this when uh, right after if you guys have been following the elections in in Egypt they had a huge yeah. victory for the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood, Brotherhood and the, yeah. and the more even more conservative <clears throat> Salafis and the theory you know they took like three quarters of the seats or something like right. way out there and the, the, like it or not people saw the secular parties as corrupt, or at least had a history of corruption before. Right, because, because Mubarak the, was... Because he was secular, yeah. and so they view, in some cases, the religious people for whatever negative things they bring with women and such as being fair players and that they would put the kibosh on corruption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and they do. I mean, well, yeah, I'm not in some ways. That, I'm not <laughs> saying that argues for it, but if you look at the history of the Taliban, you know, uh, before the Taliban takes over in Afghanistan, you have people coming to car checkpoints and, you know, getting raped and stuff. The Taliban comes in, puts a stop to all this Jeremy and starts really seems to be people. pushing for totalitarian, yeah. totalitarian What do they do to you in Florida? Today? What do they do to you? I'm not pushing for totalitarianism. I'm just trying to recognize why why do people yeah. turn to these abusers? Mm. Right. Right? Why why do people seek shelter in these uh, fundamentalist groups? Because they're they they are sometimes trying to address real problems. Mm-hmm. It's just in the end fundamentalism is a very short-sighted solution. Yeah. Right. Uh, so switching gears now, let's do some good old-fashioned counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Our topic on counter-apologetics today is uh, one that... Uh, I intended to cover last year. And why would you want to have covered it last year? Well, because last year was the 400th anniversary of the publishing of the King James Bible. Once you've passed 400 years, I think maybe adding a few months ain't going to make that much <laughs> That's of a true. difference. Yeah. That's true. King James is not going to rise from the dead. That's true. Although he would have believed in that just, sort of thing. You know, I, I, I envisioned it like, you know, we did a big anniversary for the whole 200 years of uh, publishing of Origin of Species. And since this is kind of a show that covers religion, maybe we'd do a show for the King James Bible. But we completely forgot about that in 2011. <laughs> But so what? It's 2012, and we're covering the King James Bible. Now, the King James Bible, I think, actually, part of the reason why I wanted to do a tribute to it is it is my favorite English translation of the Bible. If I was going to sit down and read the Bible, it would probably be a King James. Yeah. I mean, and historically speaking, it's the most significant, at least in the modern age, because it's the first one that was written for the people. English-speaking well, it was people. English-speaking people. It was written for the common man. Yeah. Which there e- there were read. English Bibles before that, but this was like an ambitious project. Uh, well, it was commissioned by the king. Commissioned I mean, by this, the was, king, this right. was a big deal. Right. And it really did become kind of the most cherished, most beloved uh, English-language Bible Including for centuries. It's the only one we can rely on 
for um, the true word of God. Well, yeah, and that's where we're going is because I, I would I would say read the King James Bible because it's English is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just kind of has a grandeur that many of the new translations don't. But I would yeah. never say study out of it. Right? It's, not a, it's not a great translation. There's a lot of flaws in, in its translation. And, and it also is using later Greek manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, Dave, there's a whole group of people out there who not only prefer the King James Bible as their translation, but they think it's the only Only. one. They think it is the only Bible that counts as the inspired word of God, as opposed to us who believe that none of them are. (laughs) Did I tell you when I did one of my research studies with recalling the the various Bible texts I used, what's the... uh, not KJV, it was the new revised standard version yeah. because, you know, and, and when I sent the study off, one of the reviewers apparently had some Bible knowledge said, you're not using KJV verses, and so people are not familiar with it if it doesn't have KJV in it. The, the, Which I told you I, was, I thought was ridiculous yeah. because a lot of fundamentalists are not King James only people. They, right. the King James only people are kind of a fringe of a fringe. Which may make you wonder why we're going to spend some time talking about them today. Well, I think it actually is an interesting topic in that it it deals with broader issues within Christianity regarding their doctrines of inspiration. What is the relationship of God to these particular texts? Is it directly revealing his word? Is it just getting the ideas? It's also relevant to the doctrine of preservation. Uh, Has God intervened in any sort of way to keep his words true? Because as we know, many of these manuscripts are going to have many different variants, and all these translations are going to have tons of differences. The King James Only movement, while their conclusions might be silly, is coming out of actually a real need within the Christian church to clarify their doctrines, Mm -hmm. Uh, and especially the one I forgot to mention is the doctrine of inerrancy, the belief that is held by many fundamentalists that the Bible is completely accurate and factual in everything that it recounts. Scientific truth, historical truth, there is not to be found a single error in this uh, document. But they don't make that claim about every translation of the Bible because there are plenty, especially the the newer kind of liberal, um, wishy-washy, um, squishy, lovey-dovey translations of the Bible where they would say, no, that's not the Bible. Right, you right. Know? So they have to pick one that is the correct and translation. If these new translations do differ from the King James Bible, mm-hmm. uh, and they do, they often uh, change the wording in certain passages. Sometimes entire verses are removed. And a lot of times these changes aren't really relevant to the Greek manuscripts. Maybe they're updating archaic English terms or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bringing the language up to speed. Some of these aren't significant to the Bible's message either. They might just be changes in phrasing or word choice. But there are a number of changes which remain that do impact certain Christian doctrines. Right. So a real quick example of this is uh, 1 John 5, 7, which you will only find in the King James Bible, says, For there are three that bear a record Mm. in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's the only explicit reference to the Trinity Mm -hmm. that you'll actually find, and you'll only find it in a King James Bible, because... 
that passage is not in any of the early manuscripts. It's not in any of the early church fathers as they're quoting those passages where it's supposed to be. Hmm. And so people conclude, rightly, that it was a later embellishment within the text. Uh, Somebody decided that a doctrine as important as the Trinity maybe should have at least one mention somewhere in the Bible and decided to write it in. So was it put in by... Not King James because he didn't write it, but by King James translators? Some, by, no, by some scribe uh, in a set of manuscripts that the King James Bible that they translators used to translate were working from. Yeah, for. Okay. Well, that or, or God. Or God, yes, of course. <laughs> but that's so that's an example of a passage that's going to change, that's going to have a major impact on mm. doctrines. Uh, Or you also get these situations where the newer translations kind of restore verses to their original form, which were problematic for Christian teaching in the first place. Mm. So uh, um, Luke 2.33 calls Joseph the child's father seems to be indicating a biological father. Mm -hmm. Not so good for your doctrine of the (laughs) virgin birth. Or Matthew 22 uh, has uh, Jesus saying that uh, anyone who is angry is going to uh, face hellfire. Just tricky when he was so pissed off so much of the time. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so somebody at some point decided to add a without cause. Oh, right. And that ended up in the King James Bible. Now, the new new Bibles are just restoring it to what the earlier texts said. Sure. But people see this, and they notice that some of these verses have a bearing on their theology, and they start reacting to it. It's kind of an obvious question. I wonder why more Christians don't ask it. If you have these different Bibles, and they're not the same, they have different phrases, different words, Mm -hmm. one of you cannot claim inerrancy. One of you does not have the Word of God. Evangelicals will respond to the King James only people by saying, okay, yes, but that's because only the original autographs, just uh, when uh, when John was writing John, that manuscript that he was writing, mm. that was the one that was inspired. Everything um, else so is translation. Everything after it, we should expect to find a few differences because humans have handled this and have mm. transmitted it. Uh, well, the King James only people respond to that saying, If only the original autographs are inspired, then none of us have the word of God, uh, if that is true. And so they they reject that claim. Well, so they have to deal with this question then. Does any one of them actually have a real Bible that can claim to be the completely inerrant word of God? They have decided that they do have it. Mm. (laughs) They have it in the King James Bible. And here is some of their reasoning for it. But first, we're going to have to do some a little bit of vocabulary, a little bit of talk of manuscripts before we're going to understand their case and how to refute it. So, first of all, about the King James Bible. It was written by Shakespeare. <laughs> no, it no, wasn't. Francis Bacon. No, it wasn't written by Francis Bacon or the Earl of Oxford, but that's but beside the Somebody point. was six degrees from Francis Bacon. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure, mm. of course, as we all are. That was... Great. Oh. <laughs> Boy, that would be an entirely different game. <laughs> yes, it would. I think you could only play it with philosophy undergrads. Uh, Bacon knew Blaise Pascal, who worked out a study with Isaac Newton. <laughs> the King James Bible was translated into English from a Greek version of the New Testament that is known as the Textus 
receptus. Textus receptus. The textus receptus, in other words, the received text. Mm. Not the book toilet. So that's what I thought that meant. Textus receptus. Book toilet. No? Book toilet? Yeah. Receptacle. Receptacle. Texts. Yeah. I'm not good at Latin. You you tried. (laughs) The textus receptus, in turn, is based off of a set of texts called the, the Byzantine text type. They're a group of texts from Syria. They They're represent, overly ornate. <laughs> actually, they do have very good Greek. Of course. They represent the largest, most complete set of Greek manuscripts of the Bible, of the New Testament, that are in existence. So the Byzantine text type is often then referred to as the majority text. So, so I want us to keep these terms straight. The textus receptus mm-hmm. is the Greek New Testament that the King James Bible was translated from, and that is based on the majority text, the Byzantine-type text. Okay. Now, this is back in 1611. They're working from some of the best sources that they have available to them. Uh, The King James Bible is is first published in 1611. Mm -hmm. So was Macbeth and the Tempest, by the way. Hmm. So Shakespeare was doing better work than King James at that period, but... So in in the 1800s, our archaeologists are discovering all sorts of texts in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the Egypt area. You have the Codex Sinaiticus. It was found in the Sinai Peninsula in St. Catherine's Monastery, so they called it the Sinaiticus. Yeah, the Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the earliest texts of the New Testament that had been found to date. It dated from the 4th century. It matched other fragments that were from the 4th century and earlier that had been discovered up to that point. It also had similarities to another set of 4th century documents, the Codex Vaticanus. Which is in the Vatican. Yes. Hmm. They they seem to agree in that these earlier documents had shorter versions of the New Testament. They, so they're not only earlier, but they have less material, which is indicating that the later manuscripts, right, might have been embellished. For example, somewhat. the woman taken in adultery in John 8 is not right. present in the earliest right. manuscripts. Oh, right. Which is too so bad, even, that's my favorite. So. Yeah, particular stories yeah. within right. the or Gospels. Or the, the, the very last tack on on the um, Gospel Mark. of Mark, the Ascension passages. Yeah, right, right. There's a couple of things that are tacked on, but the very last one, the Ascension passages. Which is the best part, because... Be, it says that you can drink poison. That's right. Our, That's right. So. Our, the Bible had a script doctor, essentially. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so scholars are noticing then that these earlier texts are quite different from what follows after. And so they work, uh, they decide, of, of course, that what they need, they need a new Greek text, a new synthesis of all these manuscripts, basically. Uh, and what they're going to do is they're going to strive for a more eclectic text, meaning instead of this one region in Syria, they're going to be collecting from several different regions. Mm. So they get a, they have a better geographical spread, and they're going to be bringing in these much earlier manuscripts, revising their Greek text based on that. So in 1881, Brooke Westcott and Fenton Hort do just that when they publish the New Testament in original Greek, which becomes the basis then for most modern translations of the hmm. Bible. They take that Greek synthesis of the manuscripts and use that as their as their base text for translation. So the King James only crowd 
has to explain why the Westcott Hort Greek text is not good enough. They have two major arguments for this. They say that, first of all, the manuscripts that it's based on are inferior. These older manuscripts, right, uh, are actually inferior manuscripts. Because uh, they and, hadn't come up with some of the real crazy stuff yet. Well, their their reasoning is the Christians who copied those manuscripts must have been heretics. Because oh. a, a lot of them are in this uh, Alexandrian Egypt area. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, which where, is where they where, wrote yeah, the Septuagint. This is not and, where the yeah. proto-Orthodox people had their, had their strongholds. Mm-hmm. And so they say, look, these, are, uh, these, these people were heretics. Your manuscripts are inferior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Apostle Paul is already complaining in the first century A.D. He's already complaining about the gospel becoming corrupt. So right. they say these were the Christians that were corrupting that gospel. Hmm. In a few cases, these texts are taken, these fragments are taken out of rubbish heaps. And so they say, oh, well, which is actually contradicts their earlier position. The Christians realized these were heretical texts, right, and just threw them in the trash. Which, well, okay, well, if they well, were heretics, or yeah. did they realize and throw it in the trash? It doesn't matter. Whatever they can do to try to uh, they discredit yeah. the Christians <laughs> who wrote these original manuscripts, uh, they will do. Which I think is just a transparently circular argument, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, We have no reason not to believe that Maybe these earlier texts were closer to the true Christianity, and the people who wrote the manuscripts that followed were the real corruptors. Aren't there other um, cases, though, where the, where the earlier ones have sort of errors or readings that are uh, odd, and so it wouldn't make sense for the cleaned-up version to precede that, and somebody change a, a nice, clean KJV, uh, King James version into a weird version? The logic is much more that, yeah, that you would have an odd thing that somebody cleaned up through later years into making it right. make So make there's more several sense. little anomalies that wouldn't quite fit with that. Also, why would the Codex Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, why would they be similar in some of the things that they left out, right? When these are basically going to be compiled in different regions. Right. So is there a conspiracy of the heretics to remove just a certain set of verses? Probably. Uh, yeah, that must be it. Aliens. So I think we can dismiss that one as, as pretty clear circular reasoning. You can't look back from your current theology, say, these earlier manuscripts don't fit well with my theology, therefore they must be inferior manuscripts. Maybe the, the more credible argument that they make is they reject the Westcott and Hort Greek text because they disagree with their methodology. Hmm. Hmm. They yeah. say it's at least an appeal to some kind of uh, sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's look at the methodological assumptions of Westcott and Hort. Typically, right, we would think the earliest manuscripts are going to be the best, right? Because they're closest to the if actual it's the inspired word of God. The yeah. shorter manuscripts are probably more reliable than longer ones because if you're going to change something, wouldn't you be more likely to add on mm. a bunch of different embellishments okay. and stuff than just remove? And they disagree. Uh, their argument is since since the earlier manuscripts are far fewer in number than what we would find in the Textus Receptus, mm-hmm. we don't know because of their their fewer in number. We don't know if they're actually representative of the manuscripts at that time, or maybe these are just oddities. These are anomalies that yeah. just somehow survived while the other ones didn't. What they're basically proposing is is a criteria for the scholar uh, that says, 
Whenever you come to a point where two manuscripts disagree, they say the rule that should be followed is the plurality of witnesses. We go with mm. what the majority, what the bulk says, okay. not with what a, a tiny Because that's how God writes, says. right? That would seem to favor later things because obviously manuscripts proliferate through time and you would of have, course. you wouldn't expect that there would be fewer earlier ones right. and then an explosion later on as right. as the ability to preserve manuscripts. But that's what so they that's, want. That's a, that's a they, major, yeah, that's a yeah. major issue for them because they need to say at what time are we considering the majority? Because the majority text will change right. o- exactly. uh, over time. If we're talking at fourth century, um, it's not the King James. Yeah, the Textus Receptus I mean, is it, not even on the map. Isn't that equivalent to saying that the original computers would have been must have been like iPads because we only have a few Altairs and Ataris left, and so there's so few of them that they're, they're not, more or, clever than that. They're trying to say like the reliability of your judgment. Why would you ever go against? Uh, the majority of witnesses for a few that are minority older. viewpoints, even on their own criteria, even on this criteria of plurality of witnesses, uh, their argument still fails. Yeah. This is where I think it gets it's, gets really embarrassing for the King James crowd. They love to conflate the received text with this majority text. That is the Textus Receptus with these Byzantine texts because the first is going to be derived from the latter. The thing is these these aren't the same at all when you actually look at the details. The Textus Receptus is mostly the work of one man. Erasmus publishes Mm. his Latin translation of the Bible in 1516, and he has a Greek text that accompanies it. And was the the grandfather of Darwin, so (laughs) (laughs) from what I understand. Mm. This different Erasmus. So you say. (laughs) That would be a great way to discredit him on a conspiratorial... (laughs) He polluted the Bible and fathered... It was Mm. the seed of Darwin. So his publisher is pressuring him to finish this this translation before anyone else does. <laughs> so he rushes it to the presses, and in doing so, much he, like Charles did with his book. <laughs> My to, God, to achieve salvation, oh, you have to blah 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 blah, blah blah. He bases then his Greek translation off of only six manuscripts from this the mm. set of Byzantine mm. texts, only six, and they're all dating from the 12th century. So they're some of the latest manuscripts yeah. in the tradition. The the Byzantine, like the earliest Byzantine ones, will go back to the 5th century. Mm. Uh, but the bulk of them are going to be from the 9th to the 12th. So he's actually taking the, the latest ones. He's taking stuff from not that More long More than ago. that, Erasmus didn't even have a full New Testament to work with. So when he ran out of, you know, when he was coming to portions of Revelation and First John that are missing, he's taking from the, the Latin Vulgate to actually fill in oh, his wow. uh, his gaps. Now, in the decades that are following uh, between Erasmus's publishing of this of this Greek text and the King James Bible, a handful of people go in and they publish their own versions of Greek Bibles. Mm-hmm. But almost all of these are just taking Erasmus's text and maybe modifying a, a handful of verses. And this is why we need SOPA to pass. We cannot have this kind of intellectual theft. <laughs> and and these Greek Bibles then become 
the basis for the Textus Receptus. So, so basically, summing up, the King James Bible is mostly based on one man's synthesis of six incomplete manuscripts dating from the 12th century. Including a combination of Latin and Greek sources. They want us to believe that it's this vast amount of Byzantine texts that they're borrowing from. But mm. in fact, if you were to look at, so the, the modern standard for the majority text, those Byzantine texts, uh, the modern synthesis is Hodges and Farstad's version that they published in 1982. There are nearly 2,000 readings where the majority text actually differs from the Textus Receptus. Hmm. Uh, Over half of those are significant enough that they would result in real translatable differences in those passages. Now, the King James-only person might quibble at this point that the the Westcott-Hort text has many more differences, but it's a pretty hollow victory because even on their own criteria, which is this plurality of witnesses, there's simply no way around it. The King James Bible cannot be a reliable translation, let alone the Word of God. So to close, one last little kick in the jaw for these guys. It gets even more embarrassing for them. The King James Bible-only crowd often doesn't realize that there are multiple versions of the King James Bible itself. Hmm. It's gone through several different editions. Uh, What they used to say is, well, that's just correcting misspellings, Grammar and punctuation, that's, that's all that's mm. getting changed in these editions, sure, that, sure. Not, any, not anything in the real text, but they're wrong. If you turn to David Norton's Textual History of the King James Bible by Cambridge University Press, he has an appendix with 952 verses in the King James Bible that have changed between the 1611 and 1769 editions of the text. Mm huge, huge variation. So by by their own criteria, they can't trust the King James Bible as as reliable at all. So the King James only people, I think they have a real a real issue that they start with. We really do have a problem if all these texts are variant in claiming inerrancy for any of them. But their attempt to actually rescue that doctrine completely fails. So the King James Bible is kind of like an old song that Jay-Z would sample where only a few bits get through, and then it's just a bunch of made-up stuff. I don't know this artist of which you speak of. (laughs) R&B or sports, and you've you've lost me. It's like the uh, 2000 version of uh, George Lucas's uh, Empire Strikes Back. Oh, that, where uh, it, now Jabba you the Hutt walks in the all, hangar. Yeah. Or when you're doing a Blade Runner, which version do you watch? Should you watch the thing director's with the director's cut, cut or, the or with the voiceover cut. removed, yeah, yeah, where so, later yeah. versions actually stripped away the voiceover? Just better. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't so, dumb so it down as much. What if we found old VHS cassette tapes and, and we're finding, hey, look, you know, the part where Han Solo steps on Jabba's tail. That's not in the. That's not, is not that's in not, these old. Well, you clearly want to go there. with the majority yeah, the, distribution. Yeah, video. there's more. The vast number right. of the DVDs <laughs> in the in the in the video store had had the Java seats. Oh, so that's true. Mm-hmm. Oh, should, wow. See now, that's an analogy that works for me. Bunch of nerds. Um,
let's move on to some props and shit lists, shall we? Starting off on props, um, do we want to start stateside or we do we want to go around the world? <laughs> I know it's been a month since we've been together, but yeah, around the world up. it is... Let's start in Israel, where there is very little reason most of the time for props. And this starts off as a as a real shitlister. Um, literally. It, literally. This story comes from the uh, New York Times, is entitled, Israeli Girl 8 at Center of Tension over Religious Extremism. Uh, this is the story of an eight-year-old girl, daughter of American immigrants, mm-hmm. um, living in Israel, who was harassed, spat on, called names, um, called a prostitute. Had feces thrown on her. Had feces thrown as she was walking to school, dressed by the description here, at least. What we would recognize is. Fairly yeah. modestly. I mean, long sleeves, yeah. long dress. No but didn't conform to the ultra-orthodox's strict rules on what they should wear. Exactly. And so to them, she was dressed like a whore. And these these are, to be fair, these are the Jews that embarrass other Jews. They have uh, neighborhoods there where the, the ultra-orthodox live, and they sort of, all they do all day, all the men do all day is study Torah. They don't mm-hmm. have to serve in the army. They don't have to, they get paid, they get stipends from the government. Right. And they put these signs out on their streets saying that when you walk into these areas, you need to follow, women particularly need to follow our dress codes. Uh, not and, so much they, men. They tell but... them to cross the street, go to the other side of the street, so that you're not even, you're hmm. not even on the same sidewalk as because the, the men uh, feel Torah. That, that they they have a right not to look at any women during the day, and yes. they'll avert their eyes from any woman that's not their wife. And, and this, this, not even a woman, an eight-year-old child. No, no, Dave, you're, they, the evil starts early. You don't yeah. see her. Well, oh, believe me, I, I've, I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. I know. Um, an eight-year-old child walks through this neighborhood so she can get to school, and she gets harassed. Now. That's that's the shit list part of it. Right, right. But this is this is not probably not in and of itself an uncommon occurrence. Sadly, no. Well, they've yeah, had conflicts on the uh, bus system too because they when they buses go through these neighborhoods or these specific lines where there's a lot of mm-hmm, ultra orthodox, right. they insist that the women go to the back, yeah. oh, and then geez. they get through different exits and again, so they don't who, have to mix. Yeah, it, there's been issues in the military too because women can serve in the Israeli mm-hmm. military, and oh. uh, for some reason they're threatened by feminists with Uzis. Yeah. <laughs> I would be if I was the ultra-orthodox. Yeah, that's um, they should be. Um, but so, yes, as Dave was saying, why this becomes a props is that this, this unfortunately common event was seized upon by activists at just the right moment mm-hmm. uh, and blown up into a major media story and really kind of capitalized on a growing anti-fundamentalist sentiment going on in Israel. Including um, Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu speaking out against right. this. So and, this is this is well, not just people on Facebook complaining. Yeah. Netanyahu is, affirmed secularism. He said, Israel is a de- democratic Western liberal state. The public sphere in Israel will be open and safe for all. 
But he's going to have problems, though, because his coalition, a conservative coalition, mm-hmm. is made up of some of these groups that he needs their oh, support yeah. to form a government. Well, we've talked before about how how difficult this dance Israel does between being a religious state and being a secular state. Mm-hmm. It's going to come even more to a head because of the change, the difference in birth rates between the mm-hmm. two groups. Absolutely. So you have a group of people who, like we said, they don't uh, put in in terms of like military service. They get stipends from the government that have eight, nine, Make ten a bunch kids. Of babies. Kids yeah. per family, whereas the secular birth rate, I think, is even below replacement levels, like, you know, one oh, point yeah. something yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So there's a demographic. There's, there's a gonna big be, shift There's going to be a, a, a point to where you have conservative, uh, highly religious people who don't put into the system, and the secular people are, are resentful of that. But that's well, going to make... Um, all, all the reason now, while they're only 10% of the, of the population, to actually make sure that they work towards a more more secular loss. Right. right. And and I think that that's part of what this movement is. It's a, the ultra orthodox have been be, have been becoming much more bold over the past couple of decades and uh, in regards and, to their own people as well right. as the Palestinians and I mean yeah. And, and finally you have uh, you have a grassroots movement that is trying to oppose it and visibly attack fundamentalist bullying. And so eventually what started off with just this little girl being accosted on her way to school, it blew up into a protest that thousands of people attended. Mm -hmm. The prime minister endorsed himself. Caught uh, worldwide attention. Walked into these these ultra-Orthodox areas and people basically said, we're not going to be harassed like this. So we'll we'll see. I know it's hard to be hopeful for anything nowadays, uh, but we'll we'll see how that one yeah. develops. Now, good news here in the states, um, over in Rhode Island. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with this story because it's it's been all over the uh, the atheist blogosphere. A 16 year old student, Jessica Alquist, in Providence's Cranston High School, objected to a prayer banner that was hanging up in the auditorium and she's an atheist and she complained because it's a a clear violation of the first amendment of the separation of church and state it it starts i mean it's not even like vague religious terminology it starts almighty father no here ends in amen Uh, yeah I've, i've got it right here it says on the banner school prayer (laughs) Right there. And the conversation. Our Heavenly Father, grant us each day the desire to do our best, to grow mentally and morally, as well as physically, blah, 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 blah. Amen. Didn't they deny, didn't at the school at one point deny that it was a religious thing? Yeah, they did. They didn't say it was a... What? (laughs) Yeah. That's that's awesome. Our school prayer religious? No, 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 no. So, I mean, it clearly a religious thing, and she took it to the court. This 16-year-old girl, which, by the way, the balls of this girl, it, it's remarkable. I mean, just the guts but, to... You mean the ovaries? The ovaries, ah. yeah. Even better, because... So confused there for Because balls are easy... P and XXY, or... <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> Can't we get through... <laughs> being generated into an argument about testy size... <laughs> No, the <laughs> the courage of this young woman to stand up for a, a very unpopular thing for her to stand up to because mm-hmm. um, it's a very obviously a 
fairly conservative area that she's coming from. But I'm sure from. she was safe because the, her opponents were Christians, and so they... Yeah, well, they we'll get to turn that the other in a cheek, So I want to hear the part where they turn the other cheek. Right? So, yeah, she went to the, the ACLU uh, in Providence and uh, brought it to court, and she won. And mm-hmm. the court ruled, federal court ruled, that the prayer banner had to come down. Seems like a slam dunk, right? So it came down. It, this is great. Huge victory for Jessica Alquist. And then... The people reacted, and students at her school, parents, other people throughout the world who decided this was their business started threatening her on Facebook. I'm going to punch you in the face. I mean, real scary threats, like uh, talking about curbing her, which if you don't know what that is, watch American History X. It's all, I mean, these really appalling Things. Um, a um, state representative from Rhode Island referred to her as, quote, an evil little thing. Wow. Because she stood up for the First Amendment. She's an evil and little thing. And he stood up for his constituency. Yeah. So it, also uh, kind of a, a more humorous side note to the threats and slander is the Freedom From Religion Foundation tried to buy this girl flowers mm-hmm. to say congratulations and you know stay strong because she's getting these threats they called four different florists in her area and none of them would deliver flowers to her hmm. they wouldn't deliver to a 16 year old girl because they didn't want the bad press go online and watch them squirm when the reporters asked them why and these people yeah. were generating all these patently ridiculous explanations right. well you had to show ID and I didn't want to I didn't want to have that hassle so well, they got their bad press now, and and that's good. But it, I'm I'm always thrilled to see young people doing things like this because I know I wouldn't have had the guts when I was a kid. I wish there was some way we could help her. Perhaps there is. There is a scholarship fund for Jessica Alquist. Um, and by the way, one way you can contribute to the scholarship fund is by buying T-shirts that say evil little thing on them, (laughs) which is fantastic. Um, We'll provide the links, and um, I think uh, we'll actually be making a contribution. We can take back the term like like Gaga did with little monsters. Yeah, there you go. I, I like this thing that we're doing, you know, with, with all these, these – this has happened with uh, another gentleman in his high school that he challenged some, mm-hmm. some religious establishment clause violation in his, in his school where we're, we're taking these people who are locally demonized mm-hmm. – and vilified, and we're making them national heroes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I don't know how much of a difference that makes in these individuals' lives uh, or not. I'm, I'm hoping it makes some sort of well, difference. Well, look at this. That's exactly here. what we need to do if we're going to change attitude. Exactly right. And, it and, becomes an example for everybody else everywhere that, hey, if you want to make us into martyrs <laughs> for a secular mm-hmm. cause, the next you know, step is to have, ahead, what, have religious freedom writers. Where we stock buses full of northern secular <laughs> white people and atheists, and then bust them into the fundamentalist areas and and sit down. You mean and rock beyond belief. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it, Get on the bus. Speaking of Jessica Alquist, because I I friended her on Facebook when all of this happened, and 
it's encouraging just to me to see the outpouring of support on her Facebook page. And so, you know, friend her on Facebook or just post oh, something man, about this. she's going to have so many friends. I know. She's, gonna have, she's already <laughs> way more popular than any of us. <laughs> it's a good thing for other people to see that we're not going to let um, a, a young girl, a young woman, because if you've stood up to injustice like this, you get to be a young woman. I think um, we need to show that we're not going to let people be abusive and hateful towards these people. She did what was right, and we want to encourage more people to do that, too. So um, props to her and shit list to um, everybody who doesn't like her. So me. Screw you and screw everyone who looks like you. I'm going ham. Uh, Just as a shout-out to Jessica, state schools are really good these days, value. Uh, there's no need to go to Vassar, what's in Rhode Island, Brown, or any of those, like, you know, don't go to a Seven Sisters private school because tuition's I high. hear Grand Valley State University is really good. University of, yeah, Rhode Island University, something statewide. <sighs> you don't need anything more than that. So um, that's going to do it for us this week. Now, we will be sure to post links for the um, scholarship fund for Jessica Elquist. Um, we will be making a donation as a podcast to the fund. Which, by the way, thank you for making generous holiday donations to us. Yes. Really remarkable outflowing of support we've we've gotten from you, even as we've been gone for about a month. So yeah. Thank you all very much for that. Um, in the meantime, send us your comments and questions to doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. There's Twitter. There's Facebook. There's Zazzle slash doubtcast. You can find us there um, and buy some nifty T-shirts. And we will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. I'll have okay. a shorter GTL Y next time. Well, we're fine. GLBT next. We'll save got our LGBT LGBTL LGBTGTLY. I'm changing the segment, guys. I got a big surprise for you.